our event on the human rights distribution of uh, indigenous people in Canada, United States, and Australia, together with the permanent missions of um, EPRK, Belarus, and Venezuela. Uh, again, I would like to thank the moderator for the introduction. When we talk about uh, the history of uh, the indigenous people in Canada, United States, and Australia, we cannot but uh, think of the dark history that uh, they went through. As these countries had systemic ethnic cleansing and the cultural uh, genocide uh, against the indigenous people uh, in the countries and uh, perpetrated uh, uh, alarming crimes, crime of genocide and crimes against humanity. The human rights of the indigenous people, including the right to life, the economic, social, and cultural rights, civil, political rights, and in particular, the right to development, has, has been infringed upon and jeopardized. Today, this discriminative uh, laws and policies are still in place in Canada, United States, and Australia against the indigenous people. A large number of uh, indigenous people had to live uh, in reservations in coast, or they may uh, leave their hometown for cities, but they remain marginalized in the metropolitan. And worse, uh, in all areas, in political participation, uh, Medicare, education, or, or employment, they face deep rooted inequality and discrimination in the society. And the situation is even worse to women and girls as they are subject to discrimination and threat of violence. It is true that um, the governments of Canada, United States, and Australia made some pledge, made some commitment. However, this remains in rhetoric because uh, the, the living conditions and the situation of the Aboriginal peoples, uh, there is no uh, improvement, there is no change for the better. And the situation further exacerbated under the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, so I, it is fair to say that the rights of indigenous people in these countries become a black hole, a black hole of, of human rights. So uh, as we um, take this uh, webinar today, it is time for us to call the international community to stop being silent and also to start uh, with immediate actions. We need to together urge these countries to abolish the discriminative policies and laws, and in the first place, to recognize facts and also the history, the history of the crimes committed, and make remedy and uh, reparations to the indigenous people. And also they need to further take uh, actions to, to uh, discard and also to remove all these um, discriminative um, uh, policies that, uh, and actions against uh, the indigenous people and protect and guarantee the rights that they deserve. It is uh, an honor for us uh, that uh, we invited uh, a, a high-profile uh, experts and, uh, and also uh, in the academic field, but more importantly, representatives of the indigenous people from Canada, Australia, and the United States. So I'm pretty sure that um, the insight that they provide and more importantly, the personal experience that they had will help us understand much better the, the, the situation of the indigenous people, uh, their status quo, their challenges, and also what the international community should do for them. We also 
have a chance to see more clearly the crimes that have been committed in this country against the indigenous people. And uh, we need to work together uh, so that uh, the indigenous people in these countries will get back and will get uh, justice. And also we'll have an opportunity to enjoy human rights that they, they, uh, they deserve. So uh, I sincerely hope uh, that this side event, this webinar, is success with the participation uh, of uh, the panelists. Thank you, moderator. Thank you, Mr. Jianduan, for your words are very important for us. Uh, after then, I will give the floor to the ambassador of the permanent mission of the Democratic People of Republic of Korea, Mr. Tai Son Ham. Welcome. Mr. Tai Son. here. Well, we will continue with our program and with the floors. Uh, we want to invite to the represent of the permanent mission of the Re Belarus of Republic, Badin Pisam, Pisarevich. Welcome. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Can you hear me well? Yes. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chair. Excellences, excellences, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor for the Republic of Belarus to be among the co-sponsors of this side event. It has become nearly a universal truth that Western countries are the champions of the human rights force around the world. What is more, they have assumed the mantle of the arbiters, castigating others for alleged human rights violations. Yet are these champions and arbiters really entitled to hold this high moral ground? Are their records really so impeccable when it comes to upholding human rights in their own national jurisdictions? It is very much questionable, especially in the light of the available evidence that unequivocally refutes this universal truth. Like-minded countries, including the sponsors of this event, increasingly bring Western countries to the spotlight for their violations of human rights. This side event is just another one in the string of such events which like-minded countries jointly organized this year. Today's topic is of utmost importance. The three countries that we bring to the spotlight, Australia, Canada, and the United States, are the so-called Anglo-Saxon countries which established themselves through conquest and eventual elimination of the indigenous people who lived on these territories as well as of their ways of life. Yet it's not only the problem of some distant past, it's very much about continued mistreatment and violations of human rights of those insignificant numbers of indigenous people who still live in Australia, Canada, and the United States, which certainly requires close international scrutiny. I have no doubt that our distinguished panelists will present ample evidence to this end. In concluding, Mr. Chair, I would like to wish all of us interesting and engaging discussion. Thank you very much. Muchísimas gracias eh, al representante de la misión permanente de Belarus que nos ha compartido sus palabras. Ahora queremos invitar a el excelentísimo embajador alterno de la República Bolivariana de Venezuela, el señor Félix Peña, que nos complace con su presencia en este evento. Bienvenido, embajador. Buenas tardes. Muchas gracias, Javier. Muchas gracias. A nombre de la Delegación de Venezuela, damos la bienvenida a los participantes en este importante evento organizado debido a la grave preocupación que compartimos por la sistemática violación de los derechos humanos de las comunidades y pueblos indígenas de Canadá, Estados Unidos y Australia. Deseamos agradecer igualmente a los distinguidos panelistas que nos honrarán esta tarde con sus declaraciones provenientes de la academia, como el profesor Alfred de Saya, y a los líderes indígenas y luchadores por sus derechos que tomarán la palabra. También elevamos un especial agradecimiento a las organizaciones sociales y los moderadores 
y a la señora traductora, intérprete, que con su gran esfuerzo han posibilitado la realización de este evento. A partir de 1999, el ordenamiento jurídico venezolano que nació de la revolución bolivariana otorgó rango constitucional a los derechos de nuestros pueblos y comunidades indígenas, reconociendo su existencia, organización social, política, económica, sus culturas, sus usos y costumbres, sus idiomas y religiones, así como su hábitat y su derecho originario a la tierra. Lamentablemente, esta no es la realidad de los países a los cuales nos referiremos. Denunciamos una vez más la política solapada de apartheid que sufren los pueblos y comunidades indígenas en Canadá, Estados Unidos y Australia, sometidos a la segregación y a las graves violaciones de sus derechos humanos mediante, entre otros, el extravismo que propenden a su desaparición como pueblos originarios, violando sus derechos a la salud, a la vivienda y condenándolos a vivir en la pobreza, víctimas de la desigualdad social. Esperamos que este importante evento cumpla con los objetivos y aspiraciones trazadas y que al final del mismo hallado hayamos aportado un grano más en la ardua lucha por la reivindicación de los derechos de nuestras comunidades y pueblos ancestrales, en particular de los hermanos indígenas de Canadá, Estados Unidos y Australia. Muchas gracias. Muchas gracias por sus palabras, embajador. Siempre bienvenidas y muy acertadas. Bueno, queremos conocer si se encuentra con nosotros el representante de la Misión Permanente de la República Popular Democrática de Corea, el señor Tyson Ham. En caso que no se encuentre, bueno, damos por concluido este primer bloque del evento que tiene que estar referenciado con las palabras de bienvenida de las misiones permanentes, quienes acompañan en la organización de este evento, que se realiza, hay que recordarlo nuevamente, en el marco del 48 periodo de sesiones del Consejo de Derechos Humanos, que es un evento organizado por la sociedad civil, por distintas organizaciones no gubernamentales, que desarrollan un importante trabajo en el ámbito de los derechos humanos. Bueno, sin más que hacer referencia, me queda dar la grata bienvenida a quienes serán los principales protagonistas del evento el día de hoy. Yo voy a irlos presentando cada uno, poco a poco irán tomando la palabra cada uno de ellos, pero el día de hoy me complace en dar la bienvenida al señor Seth Lefort Canegedeya. Él es líder de la nación Mohawk de Canadá. Nos acompaña el día de hoy, será uno de nuestros principales panelistas. También nos acompaña el señor Kimbal Cariú, él es miembro de la Nación Autóctona Metis de Canadá. Bienvenido, Kimbal. También nos acompaña la doctora Hannah Middleton de Australia, investigadora, académica y también activista en el campo de los derechos humanos de los pueblos aborígenes de Australia. Bienvenida, doctora Hannah. Y también con nosotros está presente el doctor Andy Tien. Él es presidente de la Institución de Gobernanza Global de China. Bienvenidos a todos y cada uno de ustedes. Es nuestro honor contar con su presencia. Y sin más que hacer referencia, queremos invitar a Seth. Él es líder de la nación Mohat de Canadá. Seth, bienvenido. Seth, tu micrófono para que podamos escucharte. Sego. Perfecto. Ah, ya no le. Wadda es Wadda. Y Wadda con un jorado no juega con un gato en la ría ni un gato. Wadda es 
I'd like to um, bring you some words of uh, um, thanksgiving and acknowledgement and greetings. Uh, I'm a, my name is Gautna Harillo, and uh, I'm of the Bear Clan, and, uh, um, and I'm uh, of the Mohawk Nation. So I've been listening to translations in Spanish and English and so on, and I keep hearing the words of the le- le- leader of the Mohawks, and that's not quite how it is, but <laughs> it's kind of funny, actually. Um, so my people, um, we have been uh, dealing with colonization for uh, hundreds of years now. And um, I've listened to um, people speak on the issue, and I believe that there's a bit of a misunderstanding here in that uh, the colonization was something of the past that occurred, and that, uh, you know, there was dark times and that they completed or they finished. And in fact, they have not at all. And... Um, so I would like to share a few a few historical antidotes about that, but um, I know I only have a short amount of time to speak, and um, I don't want to uh, I don't want to spend too much time talking about historical things that occurred because you can all look them up. What I would like to talk about today is some of the things that we're experiencing right now, and more so. I seek to uh, speak about what we've been meeting about over the last few years, indigenous uh, leaders across the country talking about solutions because we continue to hear the same um, suggestions coming from the international community and that is to pressure the Canadian government or American government or in this case Australian government to change their ways, to change their policies. But that's... um, operating on the premise that uh, they wish to be uh, good people. But we have to remember why the discrimination against indigenous people occurs in the first place. And that's where I want to begin. So what occurred here in Canada was that um, uh, a group of people came here from, uh, from, from Britain and from... Um, France and uh, Germany and uh, even Denmark. And uh, um, anyways, um, they seek to have a place to hide from um, political exile or religious exile or an economic opportunity. And so they came here and they, uh, they were weak and they needed help. And so a number of indigenous nations, mine included, the Mohawk people, we call ourselves the Ganyagaaga. We, uh, we made friendship with these people that came here. We made treaties with them. We made, we made compacts of trade and peace and caring for one another. But over time, those uh, agreements uh, were slowly ero- eroded and, and worked away. And, once, well, and as in Europe, there was, tr- there, was tr- there was trouble. There was uh, fighting going on amongst the French and British and Spanish and so on. And eventually here in Canada, what happened was that uh, the King of England in the 1780s, he kind of declared himself the first world power. And he claimed this lands where we live and all in this area um, as his, he's the rightful one to uh, expand there and to build relationships there and to make treaties and, and to, for his people to, uh, to um, establish colonies. So that meant the French and Germans and everybody else couldn't. That was what his position was. The reason why that's important is because to this day, all of the uh, state and indigenous people relations are all based on the premise of a relationship between ourselves, our nations, and the crown. They represent the crown. And that crown interest being the, a monarchy of Britain. Um, Canada is still to this day a uh, parliamentary monarchy. So they have a king or a queen. And so all of our relationships, all of our treaties and the agreements that have been made have all been made on this premise that we've got this so-called nation-to-nation relationship. But when Canada was formed, there was a man, his name was Sir Johnny MacDonald. He was a lawyer. And when he, when he him and his, his friends gathered together and organized uh, Canada... They structured what they called the Dominion, and they uh, 
they requested to have a uh, par- parliamentary democracy, and then they claimed all the territory in what is what is currently called Canada as under their dominion, and they claimed all of the indigenous people as uh, their responsibility or their property, and so we were swept up in a uh, in a political movement that occurred. Uh, both here, but also connected to to Europe and connected to the, the British uh, Crown, without our consent. And then what they did was um, they moved across the land, making these what they called treaties. But what they were attempting to do was to create land uh, purchases to acquire our lands, because the uh, what the time when they developed the uh, Canada they were um, instructed that they needed to have uh, relationships with the indigenous people because the indigenous people own the land. And so it is the foundation of all the discrimination that we've been experiencing across the, across the Americas, but particularly in Canada, has been about the acquisition, the dominance, and the control of our lands and resources. So to this day... Indigenous people are um, kept on a list, and uh, they call it a ban list or a Indian affairs list. They created a, an entire um, department within their government uh, to subdue and oppress us. And they call it, uh, while well, they're currently calling it Indigenous Affairs, but it's had multiple names over the last 150-some years. And, uh, and so uh, we're all assigned a number uh, they call a status number. Um, it's the same numerical system that they use in their prison system. So many of us believe that these lands that they set aside, they call them reserve lands. They're like little tiny postage stamps of our, of our territory where they allow us to live on them. Um, they, uh, they apply this act they call the Indian Act. And it's a set of rules that are separate from everybody else about how we can how we uh, can live on our land. So they, even the land that's supposed to be set aside for us, they claim as theirs. theirs. Um, and so they control the resources, and they held us in what they called um, uh, like wards of the state. So all the indigenous people in Canada are registered on this list and are considered... Uh, irresponsible and childlike is how they described it. And so we were not able to manage our own affairs and they took over all of our resources and our, and our money. In fact, uh, when they did that in the 1880s, they didn't uh, allow any Indians, any indigenous people uh, to even have a bank account until 1953. And um, the first time an uh, indigenous person wrote a check... Uh, and cashed a check in Canada uh, was in 1953. Um, uh, it was from the home community I'm from, Tainanega. And I was, uh, they, <laughs> they paid for uh, f- fire, uh, fireman services to the local town next door to us. So you can imagine how, uh, how far, how far it's uh, taken us that we had to, uh, they weren't even allowing us to even have our own banks. So today, we live in a, in a time when they continue to uh, claim all of the resources in our territories as their own. And so many of the countries, China, uh, Korea, uh, Britain, uh, everywhere all over the world, people are, uh, countries are buying resources that are coming from indigenous lands, um, without the consent of the indigenous people. And they're being extracted from our lands and, uh, and removed as our resources. And they hold us as wards. And so Canada take, holds the position that we're uh, incapable of managing our own affairs. And so they're managing for us as trustees. So they're selling our resources, oil, trees, um, fish, all these sort of things. Uh, supposedly on our behalf. That's how they have things structured within the Indian Act. And no one in the world knows that. But we're held in perpetual 
uh, state of uh, wardship, like we're children, and we're unable to access our own resources. They also, um, they also here in this country in Canada. They, so they claim large portions of our lands as their own, even if they don't have a treaty or they don't have. There hasn't been an agreement made. So, for example, right now in uh, in uh, British Columbia, um, there's a there's a number of uh, pipelines that are attempted to be being built across Indigenous lands, and um, the Indigenous people are against it and are uh, trying to stop it. And Canada uh, sends militarized police in and uh, criminalizes and attacks uh, the indigenous people who have a right on their own land. Even their Canadian courts have acknowledged this is those people's land. It's not Canada's. There's no treaty. The Canadian government disregards that. Um, The current uh, prime minister, uh, Justin Trudeau, he uh, blatantly and openly uh, speaks about how indigenous people do not have a veto right to to stop um, Canadian development across their lands. He just blatantly doesn't even care that he doesn't have a constitutional right to be there or or any kind of like agreement or that there's any human rights being violated. Does not care. Um, his father was a uh, was a was worse. Uh, he was a racist, and um, you're welcome to look him up. His name was uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and uh, he he, uh, he had a very uh, he had disdain for indigenous people in this country as well. Um, anyways, um, so what we're experiencing is that our lands and resources are being, uh, are being extracted and, um, and we are not uh, being allowed to have freedom, uh, to be free, uh, independent of Canada. And so even the, uh, when the Geneva Convention, um, well, 98 years ago, my people, in a confederacy that we have, political confederacy of other indigenous nations, sent a delegate to what was um, the League of Nations at the time. His name was Tuskahe. And uh, 98 years ago, I was reading the, uh, the, the notes uh, this morning, thinking about what, what they were saying 100 years ago now. And it was the same thing, that uh, we, we want our freedom. We want to be independent of Canada. We don't want to be a part of these people, and we never accepted the willingness to, to join them. Yet today, even in the, this meeting, we make the reference to the indigenous people of Canada. But uh, that means that we're a part of them, and that's the crux of the problem, is that if uh, the international community seeks to get um, countries like Canada or the U.S. to change their policies... Mm, to treat us better, they're, um, they're set up and structured in a way that they're never going to allow us to have freedom because freedom means that we take our land with us. And their entire country is based on the, on the premise that it's their land, that they claim uh, our territories as theirs and our resources as theirs. Or that they claim, in the case of Canada, they claim the resources as... Uh, theirs to access and to sell on our behalf and that we never get freedom and we never be uh, uh, separate from them. So Descahe came, Levi General, in, uh, in uh, 98 years ago. I think it was uh, 1921. And he, uh, he seeked to have a voice at, uh, at the United Nations. Well, at the time it was the League of Nations to speak out about what Canada was treat how Canada was treating us and uh and um, Britain um pressured uh the League of Nations to not allow him to have a voice to speak there so I appreciate being allowed to come here today and being asked to come here today to speak uh, I think about the efforts that were done 100 years ago and the same the same efforts the same words that he carried then I I wish to push forward that uh we are we are people across the country, across the lands here, claimed, claimed under Canada, um, that we, we simply wish to be peaceful people uh, free of Canada, uh, to, to develop our own economies, to v- develop our own education systems, develop our own governance and our own, and our own uh, currencies, and uh, we're being denied that. And we're being treated like as indigenous people, which means the people of the land that were somehow 
incapable to do so, and that's uh, that's ridiculous and 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 unfair. So I've been thinking uh, a great deal about what solutions there could be, and I've spent a number of years researching those. Currently, I know you're all aware that uh, there are undergoing uh, investigations into uh, murdered children. Canada uh, operated a uh, genocide policy of taking all of our kids from our communities for 100 years, and they put them in, uh, in these things they called schools, these institutions that they had the church operate. Um, and um, they, uh, the purpose of them was to strip our languages from our people and to strip our knowledge of our, of our land and our, and our identity so that we would assimilate into them. When I read the uh, when I read the uh, uh, convention uh, against genocide, one of the uh, one of the things that uh, is included as genocide is when you forcibly remove children from one group to another, and that's what they did to us. They did it for a hundred years, so they've created a situation in our nations where we have many many people who um, no longer speak our language. Uh, no longer know who their political family lines are or what their cultural responsibilities are. The purpose was to assimilate them. The purpose was to to strip our identity from us so that we would become Canadians. In my um, my estimation and my looking at what the Geneva Convention says about genocide, forcing a group to become another group, to join into another group, is is an act of genocide. And so... By Canada claiming us as theirs of theirs uh, a domestic problem, um, they are they are uh, ex- they are in fact doing that, and they've used the education system or so-called education system as a way to do it. And those that wouldn't break, those children that wouldn't conform, they killed them. And so, as they're going across the country, I, I believe there's a hundred and hundred and thirty schools that have to. Uh, that are currently being uh, investigated, and of those so-called schools, okay, I say that because the, um, they found graveyards on these playgrounds. Those aren't schools. And, uh, and they're unmarked, so they didn't tell the families even their children died. They just didn't come home. And currently there are 6,509, I believe, uh, unmarked graves that have been found, and we know those numbers are going to be considerably higher and that's not including all the people who've just simply been dis- who just disappeared this is what's been going on in Canada and the last residential school closed in 1996 in addition to residential schools they use another kind of school called the Indian Day School um, and so those were schools that they established inside our communities and, um, and the kids were sent to those schools and were required to go to those schools and what Canada hasn't uh, been upfront about is that when they passed the policy and the, um, that all of uh, Indigenous children have to go, to go to their schools, although they stopped operating the residential schools, they never stopped the policy that all of our children are required to go to their schools. And so to this day, people are still having to send their children to Canadian public schools or, um, or within the Canadian education system or they utilize what they call a child welfare system to take our children from us. The process of, uh, of forcing us into assimilation into their system is still ongoing. It's not over. It didn't end. Um, the difference is, is that they, uh, our children get to come home at night and sleep in our houses. But that's what's, what's going on. So the Indian Day schools were operated very similar to the residential schools. In fact, I'm a... Uh, I'm an Indian Day School survivor. I, I went to one of those. And um, uh, with my group of cohort of kids that we grew up with, uh, many of us have uh, struggled with uh, reading and writing um, because they, it wasn't the focus. It wasn't the focus to, uh, to teach us that and to, to get us strong, uh, educate us. Um, there was always a f- funding uh, formula problem, so they didn't have the financial resources to support the kids. That's what happened. So the reason I'm going into all these sort of things is because what's occurring here in Canada is that they criminalize us for standing up for ourselves. 
Um, they criminalize us for trying to establish economic um, systems outside of them. All of the things that the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People all lead towards and, and spell out that we have the right to develop our own economies, our own um, governance structures, uh, our own um, uh, policy, uh, how we're going to govern ourselves, even uh, even things like us to trying to develop our own passports. And to this day, we're having problems because the international community continues to look at us as Canada's indigenous people, as opposed to just Mohawks or Oneidas or all the different various uh, nations that are here. Here, I believe there's uh, 53 independent autonomous nations within the within the so-called Canadian uh, borders. And we all have our own territory. Some of our peoples have territories larger than Britain, larger than Italy. And, um, and those places are allowed to be considered countries. Uh, yet we're, uh, we're, we're not. So I, uh, I, 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 we had a series of meetings with the different indigenous hereditary leaders, traditional tribal leaders, across the country, and we talked about what we need to do. And what, uh, what came about was that um, there's a strong belief that we need to have Canada charge the genocide. Um, it's not just about human rights violations. It's about uh, the breach of international law and that we're supposed to have the right to be free and independent people. And so we believe that um, charges against Canada for genocide could lead towards our freedom. And some of that freedom means that we need to be able to have our lands independent of Canada. So it's unfair to ask us to, uh, to continue to be uh, situated in, in such a way that we're included or a part of the people who have been spent 100 years to try to destroy us and then ex- expect or, or think that it's going to be okay that they can apologize and maybe change a little bit of policies and then we, uh, we continue to stay as Canadians. Because the fact that they made us Canadians is a, it's a part of our genocide. So we began to look at what had been done in the past elsewhere in the world. And um, there was a, um, a system that happened after the World War II where there was a number of countries uh, that had been colonized or lands had been colonized by various uh, European nations, um, Belgium, France, Germany, so on. And they, they pulled out of those countries. And in those cases, there was an agreement that um, that, that country, say France, was leaving, they were going to leave, and that um, the, it would create a vacuum, a political nightmare. And so, so there was a, they created these land trusts, and they allowed other other nations come in to agree to, to support them and help them develop their economy and develop their, their governance structure and provide them with uh, um, military protection while they did that. An example of that is um, Israel. Israel was established that way. It was established as a Jewish land trust. And um, Britain and the United States agreed to be their trustees. So what's unique in our situation here in Canada, the U.S., and Australia is that all three of those countries um, separated from uh, from Britain, so they're they're not going to pull out and return back to Britain. They they seek to stay, they seek to stay, and they seek to claim all of the wealth and all the resources. So they're never gonna they're never gonna on their own make policy to separate themselves or to give back the land to give back the resources, because that's the whole reason they're there. And so pressuring them to change some of their policy um, is not going to equate to them allowing us to have our own banks or for us to allow us to have our own um, system of economics or to participate in international trade, trade independent of them or any of those sort of things or to develop our governance structures separate or independent from them. And, and that's, in fact, what we need. And so I... I speak out to the international community today and I ask that you think about this, that I hope that this plants some seeds that will in the future 
sprout into a, an opportunity. That, um, that if Canada were to be charged with genocide, that um, the various Indigenous nations who have experienced this genocide would need uh, the political and the financial aid and support to be able to move those agendas forward. We're currently in a situation where we've actually spoke with international lawyers to talk about um, uh, raising uh, charges against Canada, and uh, they said it might cost us $100,000. But we don't have the financial resources to be able to even come up with $100,000 to move the lawyers forward to to submit it to in Geneva to begin the process. That's how poor we are, and, and we're kept that way. Because if we're kept poor, then we... Uh, we're worried about eating, and we're not worried about fighting back for our, our rights and our lands. This has uh, been the strategy of Canada for 150 years. In fact, um, if you if you Google it, look on uh, on the internet, you'll find that uh, Sir John M. Macdonald, the founder of Canada, the first prime minister, he openly said that the the key was to uh, to starve us. If they could starve us, then we would sign treaties. And so they openly did that, and they ensured that we didn't have access to food and, and proper health care and proper housing so that we would be agreeable to give up our lands and our resources uh, in exchange for our life. And today we live in that same situation. My home community, the, our land is encroached upon all the way around us. Um, there are cities and towns built on our lands, and when we petition the Canadian government to remove the settlers... They refuse, even when the courts have acknowledged, their own courts have acknowledged that the land is ours and it hasn't been surrendered. And, and in fact, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's being occupied illegally. The Canadian government refuses to buy out the people or remove them and give us back our lands. And when, and when they attempt to give us back our lands, they do it in a manner where they seek for us to give it to them first so that it becomes part of Canada. They're not allowing us to be independent of them. And this is the problem. And then they go out in the world and they make business up deals and, uh, and agreements with even countries like China and sell them oil or, or so on. But they don't have the right to do it. They're doing it. They're hiding the fact that they're uh, holding themselves as the trustees of indigenous people who own those lands who are, who are adamantly saying, no, we don't want this to happen. So this is a problem. And, uh, and this is ongoing. This is happening now. There's, I have brothers and sisters and friends who are, uh, who are currently trapped in, in, uh, in land disputes where the police are, uh, are uh, criminalizing them and arresting them and, and taking them away and forcing them into the court systems simply for saying no and standing in the way of so-called development. So this is the situation that we live in. And these are travesties. I live in a community where um, we've been actively working at developing our own economies, and we've been uh, developing a cannabis industry and a tobacco industry, and the Canadian government, the provincial government of Ontario, has um, criminalized us. In fact, um, in my, where I'm from, um, many of us, they've uh, blocked us from being able to bank, use the banks. So we can't use uh, banking. Uh, we can't get loans to develop our businesses. We can't get loans to... Uh, in fact, I, I was denied to be able to get a loan to even build a house. Um, the, the government uh, pressures the banks, and then the banks um, deny us uh, business. And so we can't, we can't develop. We can't grow. We can't, we can't even get a house. And then they treat us like we're... Um, lazy or that we're poor or that we're no good but they've created the scenario so that we we uh, are the weakest people yet we're the owners of the land so i i had hoped to to share to the rest of you uh the idea that um maybe we could relook at what they did elsewhere in the world when people were seeking to become free of oppression and seeking to become free of uh, genocide, and seeking to become free of colonization, and to be creative in a way that will allow us to be able to uh, develop ourselves in accordance to um, the, the United Nations uh, 
rights of indigenous people and ours our right as just as people as a people to be able to uh to separate and to be able to take our land with us um many of our nations are have great resources and have a great willingness to interact and share in the world but we're being denied that opportunity and the international community is likely unwilling or not wanting to put troops on the ground or to to uh to bring um peacekeepers into these lands uh because maybe they think that the countries are too big or that they're going to fight them or so on but we may be able to look at allowing us to uh use the international banks maybe allow us to register our lands uh in a international land trust and establish ourselves to create new new countries and to allow us to uh develop our ourselves politically and to have uh political relations with us um and not be so worried about what Canada or the US or the Australian government has to say about it and um I'm sorry Mr Mr Seth yep. I do not want to interrupt That's fine. but the time of intervention has to Philip you have two minutes to conclude if you want thank you so much sorry for that Oh no no problem um this is the thing that I wanted to raise uh, the issue that was most important in my mind because um it's easy to find out all the reasons uh all of the things of what they're hurting us how they're hurting us how they're breaking our rights but it's not it's not so easy to hear our thinking about how a solution and so I thank you for giving me the opportunity to come to speak today and I hope that uh, my words are uh, uh fall on in your minds and that you're able to uh do something with them and i uh i look forward to a future opportunity to speak again and i uh i'm uh, glad that i i was invited to come and i thank you all very much what kun hor adun i uh, i wish all of you a peaceful uh, day and i look forward to hearing what everybody else has to say so that's it for me today good good day nyama thank you so much uh, said i want to say on behalf of the all organizer of this event thank you for your words your words are very valuable for us because are very very important because it's a uh a words of uh fibers uh, in canada thank you so much again once again uh well after that i want to give the floor to hannah middleton hannah middleton is a human rights defender in australia she's a specialist she's an acad- academic and of course a fighter of the human rights uh, hana welcome uh, please open your mic yeah. your mic okay thank you i start by acknowledging that i speak from the land of the gadigal people of the aora nation i pay my respects to their elders past present and emerging and i acknowledge that this is aboriginal land always was always will be the movement for aboriginal land and human rights is strong here in australia even while the people are discriminated against exploited and oppressed to a high degree the militant struggle of the aboriginal people against racism and colonialism against the denial of their rights is also an ideological struggle against individualism in support of a collective society based on cooperation not competition Today the movement is centered on demands for what is called a voice to parliament trying to find a way to give aboriginal people a say on the policies and laws that impact their lives a way to deliver constitutional recognition for aboriginal people and a way to ensure <laughs> that government is better in formed in its approach to aboriginal affairs to policy and law making we have to say 
that this is a large movement at the moment, but there is also an element of cynicism that these are things that we suspect the governments in this country will never give us while we have this kind of society. A second major campaign at the moment is Black Lives Matter, a movement against the deaths of Aborigines, mostly young men, in police and prison custody. Aboriginal people continue to die in our so-called justice system. In the last 30 years, 474 Aboriginal people have died while in police custody or prison. The third major campaign currently is against fracking, and it's in alliance with many environmental groups. 70% of the north of our country, of the continent, is now covered by fracking licenses. Traditional owners and their supporters are waging a prolonged and determined campaign to prevent fracking in order to pretend to protect their land and their water. Underlying these three major campaigns currently is the constant demand which Aborigines has, have fought for since colonization began in 1788, the demand for their land rights, their right to own and control their land and their resources. And this campaign is more than an issue of civil rights. It goes beyond the democratic aim because it contains a significant aspect the demand for the return to collective ownership of land, which is such an important means of production. Aboriginal communities and their supporters have been fighting on many fronts in addition to land rights. Much has been achieved, but much more remains to be done including in support of vastly improved Aboriginal employment, education, health and housing. Aboriginal people are the proud keepers of what is arguably the oldest continuous culture on our planet. Their heritage spans many different communities each with its own unique mixture of cultures, customs, and languages. In May 2020, there were an estimated 745,000 Aboriginal people living in Australia, making up about 3% of the country's population. Today, Nearly 35% of those people live in major cities. Almost 45% live in regional areas. Almost 8% in remote areas. And almost 14% in what are defined as very remote areas. In common with many other countries, the non-Aboriginal population of Australia is ageing, while Aboriginal peoples are facing increased growth in the younger age groups. There were approximately 250 Aboriginal languages spoken at the time of colonisation. Today, many Aboriginal people are bilingual but this pattern varies, with 56% of the people living in remote areas speaking an Aboriginal language, but only 1% in urban centres. <coughs> Aboriginal communities 
suffered deep intergenerational trauma, sadness and anger from losing family members. Almost half of all Aboriginal adults report that they or their relatives were members of the so-called stolen generation. The stolen generation are the countless number of Aboriginal children who were forcibly removed from their families from the 1910s to the 1970s under the pretext of child protection. Once children were removed, they were forced to assimilate into white society. This included being forbidden to speak their traditional language or participate in any form of cultural activity and having to adopt new names and identities. Although the stolen generation officially ended in 1969, the practice of removing children continues to this day. Between 2012 and 2017, the number of Aboriginal children placed into what is now called out-of-home care rose to 56% of each 1,000 children. Across the country, many individuals and communities maintain strong connections to their culture, language, and traditional lands. Land rights infuriates the Australian ruling establishment because the demand is for communal, inalienable property. It puts forward a case for the expropriation of private property, which is the basis of our current economy. It creates an alternative to private property and raises the question of social ownership of land and other resources by all the people, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, in a people's Australia. Land rights is the recognition of prior Aboriginal ownership of the entire Australian continent. There must be legislation to return land as communally owned and inalienable property (coughs) to its traditional owners on the basis of traditional ownership, cultural association, long occupancy, connections, and need. In the short time we have tonight, I want to try and give you a picture of the situation today through some statistics. But I would like you to remember that behind every statistic is a human man, woman, or child who is struggling with what our society imposes on them at the moment. As with many other figures in this report, matters have changed for the worse as a result of the COVID pandemic. We've just had another national census and the most recent figures have not yet been published. But we know that Aboriginal unemployment has increased significantly. In 2015, just over half of all Aboriginal people were not employed, compared with 24% of non-Aboriginal Australians. In health, Aboriginal communities have poorer health outcomes compared to their non-Aboriginal counterparts. The experience of colonisation and the long-term effects of being colonised have caused inequalities in Aboriginal health, including physical, social, emotional, and mental health and well-being. In 2012, the average life expectancy of Aboriginal people was approximately 10 years less than that of the non-Aboriginal population. 
Aboriginal infant and child health is significantly poorer than that of non-Aboriginal infants and children. 37% of Aboriginal children are overweight or obese with all the medical problems that brings with it. Aboriginal Australians are twice as likely as non-Aboriginal Australians, twice as likely to have a severe or profound disability. Aboriginal Australians are three times more likely to be hospitalised for intentional self-harm than other Australians. In 2011, almost 24% of Aboriginal people aged between 20 and 24 had attained a year 12 or equivalent qualification. However, Aboriginal people aged 15 years and over were still half as likely as non-Aboriginal Australians to have completed school to year 12. They were also twice as likely to have left school at year nine or below. About 35% of all Aboriginal households are living in dwellings that have structural problems including rising damp, major cracks in floors and walls, major electrical and plumbing problems, and roof defects. 35% of all Aboriginal households. Over 55% of Aboriginal households who are renting mainstream or community housing report that their dwellings have structural problems, over 55%. In the 2016 census here, almost one-fifth of Aboriginal households lived in dwellings that required one or more additional bedrooms. Overcrowding was worse in non-urban areas at 28%, whereas overcrowding in Aboriginal housing in urban areas was 16%. One in five Aboriginal women experience physical violence. Aboriginal women are three times more likely to experience sexual violence than non-Aboriginal women. And remember, in our society, one woman is killed by somebody she knows each week. That's the figure for everybody. It is worse, three times worse, for Aboriginal women. Aboriginal women are also... 23 times more likely to be imprisoned than non-Aboriginal women. Aborigines are perhaps the most incarcerated people on our planet. They are just 3% of the population, but 27% of the total prison population in 2016. In December 2013, the national imprisonment rate for Aboriginal adults was 15 times higher than for non-Aboriginal adults. In Western Australia,